Hello, and welcome to the Signpost Inn podcast, a space at life's crossroads to connect with God and find direction. Pour yourself a drink, grab a seat, and join us on the back porch for a friendly conversation about Christian prayer, spirituality, and faithful theology. My name's Matt. And I'm Brandon, and we're really glad you're here. The Signpost Inn podcast is brought to you by the Signpost Inn Ministry, where we offer spiritual direction, retreats and sabbatical residencies, and lots of resources and training. You can find out more about what we do and support us by visiting signpostin.org. This episode is a part of my series where I interview experts and practitioners from across the spectrum about contemplation and contemplative prayer. I'm asking, what exactly is contemplation and contemplative prayer? Is it new age nonsense or does it lie at the very heart of the Christian life? And if, as I believe, it's the latter, how exactly does the average Joe do it? In this episode, I interview Father Theodore, an abbot of a local Orthodox monastery, and I had a fascinating conversation with him. And if you haven't already listened to my previous interview with Lutheran professor John Kleinig, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that one. And coming up soon, I'll be posting an interview with Dr. Kyle Strobel from the Talbot School of Theology. Matt and I would love to hear your feedback and questions on these interviews, so please send us your thoughts and questions to podcast at signpostin.org. We'll try to respond to every email we get. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the back porch. My guest today is Father Theodore. And he is the abbot of the Monastery of Our Lady and St. Lawrence, which is actually here in Canyon City, Colorado. It's an Antiochian Orthodox monastery. And uh, Father Theodore, thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome, Brandon. To kick things off, I thought it would be helpful if you could just give us a brief background. Who are you? How did you become the abbot of an Orthodox monastery? Yeah, a little bit of the backstory. Okay. Well, I'm from Washington State and grew up in a kind of generic American family from the late 50s, early 60s. I had a Roman Catholic mother and a Protestant father. Uh, I was baptized Roman Catholic. And as a teenager, I became very interested in faith and in the church, partly as a result of a movie that I watched, interestingly enough. Yeah. And it it inspired me to go and try to learn more. And another big influence was I discovered classical sacred music, particularly the, the heritage in the Catholic Church of Gregorian chant and polyphony. Mm. And... This was not what we had in church when I was growing up. We did we had entered the era of the guitar mass and things when I was a teenager. Yeah. And <clears throat> I was okay with that until I discovered the other. <laughs> and then suddenly it was like, wait, wow, there's all this. Why aren't we using this? Yeah. Um I had three sisters, all younger, and one of the things I always wanted was a brother. Mm. Now, I know people who have brothers who wish they had sisters, but (laughs) I wanted a brother and that wasn't going to happen. And I think that partly combined with the discovering 
God and the things in the Catholic tradition that related to God that led me to, to look at religious communities. And eventually, when I graduated from high school, I was still 17, I entered the Franciscan Friars. Hmm. I spent five years as a Franciscan in Washington, D.C., in New York State, and in Israel. And wow. eventually came to one of those dreadful growing up realizations that maybe my mom was right when she said I should go out and experience life before I went into a monastic community. So I, I with permission, left the Franciscans and uh, set about exploring whether or not I could manage my life on my own, as if anybody can. <laughs> um, so I, I worked um, some administrative work. I worked as a houseman and cook and chauffeur. And eventually, I grew dissatisfied with what I was experiencing in terms of worship and things. And I, I kind of by accident got invited to an Episcopal church and fell in love with the music and the reverence that I found there that I just wasn't finding in my home parish in the Catholic Church. And after some time of exploring and, and looking and attending both, I ended up becoming an Episcopalian. Eventually, I entered an Episcopal religious community. I worked for the church and eventually was also ordained a deacon, and uh, loved that, um, served in various capacities. I was the chaplain in an Alzheimer's facility. I managed a home for men with AIDS in New York. And eventually, though, the theological drift, or changes maybe I should say, uh, in Anglicanism, left me dissatisfied. Uh, I felt they were, they were moving away from some of the very things that had led me to, to be an Episcopalian. And I spent two years exploring, re-exploring Roman Catholicism and also Orthodoxy. And at the end of that, in 2002, I entered the Orthodox Church. That meant surrendering my ordination. It meant leaving my religious community. And I was Orthodox for five years. And four of those, I was unofficially a monastic novice under an elder. And then finally, in 2007, the then Bishop Joseph of Los Angeles, who's now the head of the Antiochian Archdiocese, tonsured me as a monk. And about a year later, I actually went into a monastery. And I was in a couple of them, trying to find the right niche. Eventually, I did that, but that niche closed <laughs> at a later date in some unfortunate circumstances. And I came to Colorado as a refugee because I had no place to go. And the campus where the monastery is, which belongs to an independent not-for-profit, allowed me to go there and, and live. 
it turned out that a nun I knew had also moved there to live. And so informally, we were both there for about a year, and we decided to actually try to establish a monastic community, which gained official approval in 2015, uh, after which I was ordained a deacon, and then several years later, a priest. And I was elected abbot, and we went from there. Yeah, and that brings us, brings us to today. <laughs> yeah, wow, that is, so you've had a, rather broad range. <laughs> you're, you're, that is a short, short sweep through a very long story. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh yes. Very, very long and very circuitous. Yeah. That is fascinating. Well, what I brought you in today for is part of this ongoing kind of exploration of my own of what does the Christian contemplative life tradition look like I have a very long and convoluted story myself that brought me to a place of wanting to explore these things much more deeply. And as I've done so, I've just grown in appreciation for the different perspectives that are brought about. And that's so that's what I really wanted to talk to you about is I am somewhat familiar with the Western church's take on contemplation. Certainly not an expert, but familiar enough to ask some questions. But I'm less familiar with the Orthodox perspective. Although I will say, I think it was you that gave me the book or let me read the book at the monastery on, I think it was titled Orthodox Psychotherapy, which is a great book. I Oh, yes. Taught me, taught yes. me things I didn't, taught me things. I was wonderful. Mm. So anyway, thank you for that. Well, <laughs> but, mine, I haven't even read the whole thing. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's, you should, it's great. <laughs> but be that as it may, yeah. What is the Orthodox understanding of this idea of contemplation? What's its purpose? How does it fit in? Start there. Well, it's a very big topic. And yeah. there are very, very thick books written <laughs> on it, uh, which is a bit much for a podcast. Right. But I think we could say there are, there are several approaches within orthodoxy to what in the West we call contemplative prayer. Interestingly, it's not really a term they use very much in the East. It's more often referred to as hezekiah, which basically means quiet stillness. And it's linked to another fancy word, nepsis, which is watchfulness. Hmm. So in, in orthodoxy, it's key to understand that we can't attain to contemplation of the living God by techniques. Mm. There's no <clears throat> actual guaranteed formula for being contemplative. There, there is, we do talk about a natural contemplation, which maybe we could call awareness or maybe even philosophy, but that is not the same for us as contemplation or hezekiah. So um, can I pause you for a second and ask just... You may. So hezekiah, is that a term that's used about... I mean, does that designate a kind of prayer? Does that designate a kind of life? Does uh, What is... 
unpack that term a little bit for me. Quiet stillness, I get, but how does how is that term used? Okay. Well, the the kind of prayer is usually called hesychasm, which just you know same yeah. root. It's it's very difficult to define precisely. There are those who who are known as hesychasts who really focus on seeking contemplation of God. Everything in their life is ordered to that stillness mm. and that openness to God. They have generally, and, and this this was the next part of what I was going to talk about. I think actually this works into yeah, go right the next part. As I said, there's no technique. People will often talk about the Jesus prayer, which is a characteristic Orthodox form of prayer, comes, comes from descent from the desert fathers in Egypt in the fourth century. And, and just briefly. But even people, that, yes, go ahead. But just briefly for the people that are listening, the Jesus prayer is, as I understand it, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's like the Basically, basic form. yes. Yeah. And Longer, I know there's shorter. There's there's various, okay, various lengths of it. Okay, and it's it's a prayer which is meant not to be an end in itself, but to bring stillness mm. and focus one in preparation for contemplation. Okay, so the prayer itself. And there are techniques associated with it, but again, they they don't create contemplation. They dispose one to it. So we do say that there are some practices and prerequisites to contemplative prayer. Some of those, it's not an exhaustive list, would include belief, faith, that there is a living God who loves us, a knowledge of scripture, and also of the lives of the saints who have sought God in contemplation before us. And that's where you can actually see quite a variety of, of things. Um, but, but of course, we, we have 2,000 years of saints, yeah. so many that it, it takes volumes and volumes to list them all. Then so, repentance. Repentance is key. It is a sine qua non of contemplative prayer because it's a fruit of, of coming to know yourself honestly in relation to who and what God is. It's coming to realize that we have to set aside the masks, multiple ones, <laughs> that we like to wear to hide the truth of what's really inside of us in our mind, in our heart, in our soul. And 
that's because it is the actual unmasked person that God wants the relationship with. God can't have a relationship with a mask because it's not based in truth. And God is ultimate truth. So that knowledge leads us to repentance. And then ascetic self-denial. Now, by that, I don't necessarily mean self-flagellation, starving oneself, all of that. But self-denial is a New Testament principle for the life of Christians because it is about orienting yourself to the other, both God and neighbor. It is a practicum for self-sacrificial love. And that is, again, a prerequisite to contemplation. Worship and the sacraments for us are also central because we are called as the body of Christ, not to just be an individual contemplative, but part of a living organism which is oriented towards God and open to accepting from God that which he wishes to give. And that is what, what we're doing in worship. We don't worship for our own sake, but our own sake is never satisfied apart from worship. <laughs> and then exercise, because the spiritual life needs exercise just like the physical life, the practicing of being still. I often tell people there's a very important reverse saying that they need to learn. Don't just do something, sit there. Because if we don't, we, we can't be in communion with God because so much else is going on. And it's a distraction. Some of it's good distraction, mind you. And I'm not saying we should be navel gazers all the time. But that sitting still with God is so important because it, it's so easy with prayer to talk so much that you don't listen. And listening for God is not easy. In my experience, it takes real practice. And that being still is what allows us to come to know God as opposed to knowing about God, uh -huh. which are two very different things. Uh -huh. I know periods of my life, I knew a lot about God because <laughs> I read a lot of books. Yeah. But it is highly questionable if I actually knew, knew God. 
So I kind of want to try to summarize here what I'm hearing. What I think I'm hearing is, well, the first thing I'm recognizing I understand now, okay, contemplation is a much bigger topic than a simple, here's a definition, let's go from there. However, what I'm hearing is in some sense, and I'm familiar with this idea, it's, well, the word nepsis that you brought up, there's a kind of watchfulness, a kind of seeing of God that is what's happening at the end. But what we're talking about so far is how does one prepare or dispose oneself for being Mm -hmm. able to have that seeing? And so if if we're going to use the word contemplation as a seeing or experiencing God, not talking about or having thoughts about, but actually seeing him or watch being with him, then what you're talking about has been a, there's some things that are sort of, you used the fancy Latin phrase, sine qua non, right? That without which, like you can't have that kind of experience or seeing of God without first, and I can't remember everything you said, but the main one you talked about was repentance. And I'd like to have you unpack that a little bit, but repentance, worship, and then stillness were the big ones that I heard. Um, knowledge yes. prior. There was knowledge that brought about those things. But I also think you said, and then I'm going to turn it over back to you, but it sounded like you also clearly said that those things don't guarantee or make one have vision or time with God. But you use the word dispose. They like open me up to it. They prepare me. Maybe they even clear the way, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Is is that where repentance clicks into this thing? Is that repentance is a part of clearing the Absolutely. window shield wipers on the Yes. It's not, it's not, it's not a matter of I need to beat myself up all the time because I'm a lousy sinner. Well, you know, sorry, but you are a lousy sinner. I'm a lousy sinner. But The recognition of that isn't about us. It comes from being confronted with the holiness of God. Um, I get this wrong, forgive me. But Isaiah, who encountered the presence of the living God and immediately recognized who he was, in the light of God. And the point of that is not then to stay moping (laughs) because I'm a sinner. It's to change your life because we cannot enter into contemplation of God if we remain tied to sin. And most of us spend our whole lives trying to become untied (laughs) because at the root of it is pride. That's what's at the root of sin. And acquiring humility takes hard work. When we get those little glimmers of who God truly is, it helps. But only if we're willing to then look at ourselves in that light. So that's why we would say repentance is so important. And we would say guilt serves a purpose. But once its purpose is fulfilled, it's only a tool. Let it go. God is not looking for us to be perpetually miserable. 
He's really not. Sometimes I think people have that impression. Um, and then repentance, of course, renews when we realize we've fallen again. But otherwise, it becomes kind of an undertone and awareness of how thin in this life the ice is between God's shining light and the darkness of the deep. And so we walk carefully. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's why we do place a great deal of emphasis on repentance. Mm -hmm. But it's a tool, not an end in itself. How would you answer the question, what is the end in its, what is the end? What is the purpose, the goal here? I, I don't know union if that, I don't know. with God in Christ. Can you, can you say more about union with God in Christ? Oh, indeed. How to keep it in line with what we're actually talking about is another matter. <laughs> well, I guess, let me ask it that way. I guess I assume that contemplation of God is a, and that seems to me to be one of the distinctions between the different traditions. And I don't, I don't just mean East and West. I mean, even within the West, there's a distinction right. and there's questions about what is union with God. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that whenever I've gotten into the topic of contemplative prayer, like that's sort of one of the ways we describe what the goal is. Like the goal is, the point of contemplation is that it is a union with God in some sense. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's how I see it being connected what, I don't know what I'm asking other than just to really say, when you say, hey, the goal is union with Christ, union with God in Christ, tell me what that means for you. What does it mean to have union with God in Christ? Well, I think, I think that's a good question, and I think it may lead right into the next section of the notes I made before okay. I got to your back porch. I love so, it when that happens. Yes. <laughs> True contemplation, or Hezekiah, as I said, there's no technique. And that's because it isn't something we achieve on our own. It's a okay. gift of grace. Mm. Uh, the West sometimes talks about infused prayer, which means basically that God himself is inspiring and giving you what to pray. And it's an intervention of God, who is love, that enables us to know even as we are known. So the first thing I would say is union with God is personal. It is a relationship with God, the tri-personal. Contemplation is beyond words or images, which is why we call it Hezekiah or stillness. Those who know anything about the Orthodox tradition know the great value we place on iconography. But eventually we are called beyond images because the image of God is Jesus Christ. He is the icon, and it isn't about his physical appearance. It's about who he is, and it is in stillness that we, we come to begin to quote-unquote see 
who he is. So my mind always wants to run like really practically and ask the question. Okay. I think I have a sense of what that means when you say that in stillness, we come to metaphorically see Christ as he is. But I don't know that I could articulate what that means. And maybe that's the point is I can't like, maybe it's not articulatable because it is that the words that you said, it's beyond words and images. And I guess my dumb question is, well, then what is it? <laughs> it is, is God hmm. personally present. So yes, I mean, I think what you just said is very true. I don't know that it can be articulated because ultimately God is incomprehensible. We cannot fence God around and say, now I've got it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's why I think St. Paul, and actually even before him in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, uses allegory mm-hmm. so much because it's about a personal relationship. It's about an encounter that teaches us what it is to have, as, as classically in English we put it, an I-thou relationship. An intimate first name basis. Mm-hmm. Okay, this has just broken something open for me, Father Theodore. The partly because of my own background religiously, <laughs> the phrase "a personal relationship with Jesus" has always been a very frustrating phrase. Right? Yes. It's 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 always been. It's like it means something that nobody ever told me what it meant. Is how I've often felt about it, mm-hmm. and I was just supposed to know what it meant. But then as I did that, it sort of meant something like you, I was really committed. But I think now what we're, so in the context that you're talking, I'm hearing something very different. What I'm hearing is, remember when you sit down with somebody you like and you have the encounter with another person, another human being, what is that like? There's a sense in which that's kind of ineffable too. Right? Like, I can't yes. really say what it's like to sit and be in your presence or to sit with my wife on the porch or to hang out with my friends. I can just tell you, I did it. I was there. We were together. It, it's not really a feeling. I didn't really have thought. It wasn't. Be- there's. Go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. No, okay. I'm just. There's, it, there's yeah, a very famous story about a very famous. A Roman Catholic saint, St. John Vianney, who was profoundly spiritual himself. You're smiling. I know know your listeners can't see that, but you're smiling. I bet you know the story. Well, I think I want you to finish the story. Okay. Go ahead. He, He went, he had a man who sat in his parish church, very free, like every day, just sat there. And finally, St. John just couldn't refrain from asking, what are you doing? You just sit here. And the man said, oh, I look at him, he looks at me, and we're happy. Yeah. 
Yeah, Dr. In Kleinig. many respects. And I actually story, know yeah. a very revered Orthodox archbishop who tells this same story. Yeah. Okay, so I feel okay using it. Mm. <laughs> that is what the knowledge one gains in contemplation is like. Mm-hmm. It is, you could not, from those wonderful moments, when you sit on the porch with your wife, you don't talk. You're just there. You can't explain that to anybody. One can only know that by experiencing it. And I'll be, you know, I'm always very upfront with people, and I'm still working on that. <laughs> I don't know that, other than maybe a few very brief moments, that I've been given that gift yet. I think I still have too much to let go of and get out of the way. Mm-hmm. But that's different. And if I, correct me if I'm wrong, because I can hear people asking this. You have stuff to get out of the way, as we all do, but that's different than earning it, right? I mean, that's different than you. Correct. Like, you're not saying Correct. God's going to reward me with this if I figure out how to get rid of it. No. But, no, I'm not saying that at all. Like I said, it's not a technique. There's no guaranteed result. You know, it's not a a tit for tat. Grace is always a free gift. But we do have to be open and accepting of it. And I think that's where, for many people, that's where the hitch is in this. They, They aren't ready or even aware of the need to let go of the mask, to let go of the things which, to use classic language, tie them to this world and prevent them from receiving the inbreaking of the supernatural world. I don't know if this is the right language to use, but is it in your in your way of thinking, is it guaranteed, quote unquote, in the sense that God wants to do it? That he is, like what's stopping it is not him. It's not that he's not giving the gift. It's me not receiving the gift. It's me not being open to it. Yes. Okay. Yes, very much so. And I think I think our tradition is is very much cognizant of that. Because that, yeah, and that's we, we like, do trust in God's promises that yeah. if we are genuinely faithful, genuinely seeking, God honors that because God desires not the death of a sinner, mm-hmm. but that the sinner turn and be saved. And so we see God as, again, Our human words are analogies, as desperate to love us, so much so that he not only created us, but took the time over millennia to nourish one people in particular to be the place 
where he could make the fullest revelation of himself in one of those people. Not just for them, but for the sake of the whole world. We, we believe God scattered seeds of his truth everywhere, that even some of the things we would say are not true in places, nonetheless can be openings to the truth. And yeah. that's because it's what God desires for us. Mm -hmm. And and I person, this is just me. I, I haven't read this in the fathers explicitly, but I think God looks for every possible opening yeah. through which he can extend himself to touch the hearts of people. I think that's one of the threads that I find as I learn more about the contemplative life or contemplative prayer is there is a misunderstanding of it that exists that is very much a very transactional, if you will, in its way mm -hmm. of thinking. This is like what I hear you kind of warning it off technique, right? I mean, there may be techniques in certain aspects of kinds of prayer, but in the sense of achieving this Hezekiah, this stillness, this presence with God, if you turn it into a technique, then it becomes a transaction where I'm buying off God's presence, where I'm purchasing time with God. And what I'm hearing you just saying now is what makes that the wrong way to see it is that is that that's not the way that God actually is. He's not the kind of God who wants or needs to be bought off, if that, no. if that makes sense. No, this is, this is the opposite of the opposite of many early religious strivings that we were, well, of course, the word religion means to bind. And we were trying to bind God to do our will. God instead bound himself to do what was good for us to the extent of of the immaterial word of God becoming flesh. And so we are not binding God by our techniques, by our practices, but rather we are conditioning ourselves to be bound by him. Um, some would put that in terms of by his law some by terms of by his love, by his revelation of what is good and what is not. This jives with or connects with, there's a, I don't know how famous the definition is, but there was a Jesuit priest who defined contemplation or contemplative prayer. His name is Walter Burghardt. And he says, contemplation is taking a long, loving look at the real. And I really have found that to be helpful because it sounds, it what it does is it situates this, whatever else we're doing in this process, <laughs> what mm -hmm. we're doing is sort of, it's about aligning myself to reality. It's about seeing reality as it is. It's about, and I'm, I'm kind of hearing hints of that in the allowing myself to be bound by God's law or bound by God's love. That's not a... I do this, therefore X happens. It's more of a like, this is the way reality is. And the work that I'm doing, if you want to call it work, is 
shifting myself to, to be in alignment with it <laughs> rather yes. than being disalignment with it or fighting yes. against it. Absolutely. I, I think yeah. that's very well put. Okay. Um, so that, that actually leads me to the next question that I really want to get to before we run out of time. And the question is, so you are a, you are an abbot of a monastery. You spend mm -hmm. hours of time in prayer. I, I often have told my friends to their great surprise that you guys pray through the entire Psalms in a week from what I understand. And yes. so no offense, but it seems to me that Hezekiah stillness, quiet is something that you have a lot of time for. It's what you do. What about me? What about the average Joe? <laughs> How <laughs> is, is this kind is Hezekiah, is that kind of prayer something that I should do, can do? Let's start should and can, and then we'll ask how. <laughs> yes, you should. And yes, you absolutely can. Okay. So while everything in monastic life is geared towards facilitating um, stillness mm. in a very intensive way, the call to know God not just know about, but to know God, is the call given to all Christians. There's nothing we do as monastics that is not necessary or healthy for all Christians. It's a degree. We have the luxury by giving up some things to focus more. Very, very famous quote from G.K. Chesterton, whom I'm sure you're familiar with. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Yeah. And I think that beyond just what he was talking about is very apt for this subject. Because the truth is, normal, everyday Christians, as we would say, living in the world, can pursue and have lives of prayer and even contemplation that can be very deep. But it takes a real discipline to arrange your life in a way that allows this in the midst of family, work, civic responsibility, and all of that. Some of those things are things we set aside, not because they're bad, but because we've chosen something else. And, and I'm sure you know in this context, sometimes misused, but, but the whole Mary, Martha story with our Lord, you know, we, we're specifically giving up things because we have chosen the better part. That part is good no matter who does it <laughs> or to what degree. But we've chosen to specifically focus everything through the lens of that better part. And so I tell people all the time, you won't find time. You have to make time. And that's where I think most people find the greatest difficulty. I, I know people who consider themselves lucky if they just say their morning and evening prayers. And they find even that's hard to do. And, and for that, because none of this is meant to discourage, it's all meant 
to encourage and and show something that if you don't really take the time to look for, you're not going to find. And and the the real model, I think, in orthodoxy for this is the icon for the Feast of the Transfiguration of Christ and the hymn that goes with the icon. Because in both the icon itself and in the hymn, the three apostles who were on the mountaintop with our Lord, with Elijah and Moses, one of them is looking full on at Christ. One of them is shading his eyes. And the other one is facing Christ, but his head's turned completely around. And the hymn says, they each beheld his glory as they were able. And this is such an important thing because not everybody in this life is going to attain to that absolute stillness and contemplation. But God will work with them in whatever capacity they have, whether it's, it's personal or due to circumstances. When God sees effort, God responds. And we know even from the New Testament, you know, I hate to say it, it's abhorrent to Americans, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> we'll all be equal in heaven, but there are degrees that are hinted at in scripture, even there. And what does that mean? I don't know. I, I used to tell my abbot in another monastery, Father, I will never be a spiritual thoroughbred. I am a milk wagon horse. I plod along. I have no expectation of sprinting and winning the derby. Okay, I know myself that much. And plus, a whole lot of things change when you become the abbot, the superior, because all the things you didn't have to worry about, of course, I'm not supposed to worry, but I must pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, the busyness. So comes yes, back in and... everyone is called to some degree of contemplation in which they are able to be still and know God, in which they begin to understand in their soul, in their heart, more than in their mind, what it means for Christ to dwell in us and us in him. Hmm. And it's, it's really in what we call contemplative prayer that that happens. So what advice would you give to, yeah, just your average Joe Christian, not the theologian Christian, not the, you know, what, what's, what's the advice? How do I, how do I move from where I am to more? Pay attention to what Jesus said, go to your chamber, close the door and pray to your father who is in secret. 
you have to make some time. And I think in a family, they're, they're, that's so difficult, especially with little kids. Once you have teenagers, I don't have to tell you, they'll leave you alone lots of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but earlier on, not so much. So you have to kind of have an agreement, let's say, with your spouse. On alternate days, one of you gets 15 to 30 minutes to go to a room, close the door, and have your time respected by everyone. And I would say, as kids grow, knowing that this is daddy's time with God or mommy's time with God is just as powerful as 52 Sunday school lessons a year. Because that's what says to people, this is serious. Especially then when it's joined with prayer together. But that time on your own, for, for at whatever level one is, that is God's time. And of course, as, as I said earlier, includes listening, not just talking. I heard, I, I cannot remember who I read that said this, but on this topic, and I think it was kind of tongue in cheek, but the art of prayer is the art of stealing time. And I kind of found that to be helpful as it's almost like I have to steal time from the devil almost. You know, it's like take it back I, from the distractions that are constant. I I would not dispute that in the least. And in fact, I would say, I mean, not that we don't do a lot of work. The monastery has lots of cleaning to do. We have a guest ministry. But as a life, we're stealing ourselves back from the world in order to learn how to be present to God. So so I guess I'm guilty of grand larceny or something. <laughs> right. Um, we need to wrap up here in a few minutes, but I'd like to ask, let me ask the question about meditation. Is that a, because that sometimes gets used differently, obviously it gets used differently in the mm -hmm non-Christian world. I know that in the Western tradition, there has been at times in history, like a distinction made between the meditation and contemplation, meditation being reading the word and then contemplation being something that happens after that. Is that something similar in the Orthodox tradition or? Yes. Yes, okay. it is. Meditation for us is primarily related to scripture reading or reading from the fathers or the lives of the saints, and chewing on what we've read to extract its juice. This is, this is the ancient way of meditation. They would often just repeat. Their, they'd be reading, and a phrase would strike them, and they would pause and slowly, deliberately, maybe spaced out, repeat that phrase and reflect on what it was saying about their life. Mm -hmm. So it's not scripture study per se, it's, it's soul study, mm. which then is seen as being inspired by God. Because as you know, we can read a scripture passage a hundred times, and then on the hundred and first, it's the light bulb goes off. Mm -hmm. So that is the meditation mm. for us. 
the Benedictine approach to prayer, Benedictine being the kind of monk I am, we follow the rule of St. Benedict, is very closely tied to what's called Lexio Divina, or sacred reading, which has four traditional stages. Reading, meditation or reflection, prayer on what you've reflected on, asking God for what you need to be able to do his will, and then contemplation, letting go of words, images, and just being present to God. Now, it all sounds so simple, and it's not. (laughs) And nor is it always, in my experience, a matter of you follow the four stages, number one, number two, number three, number four. Sometimes I'll, I'll do reading, and I'm just not in much of a reading mood, and I'll put the book down, and I'll do the Jesus prayer. And maybe pause while I'm doing it sometimes. There are a variety of ways you can practice it. And so, so the meditation is is more, I would, I would say, trying to digest God's word, mm-hmm. whether it's God's word in scripture or God's word in the lives of others mm-hmm. and in their teaching. So it's not, it's not, it, I mean, it can also be part of, of the leading to repentance, mm. reflecting on one's sinfulness, one's humanity, which is contingent. I mean, we did not create ourselves. <laughs> so, so it can also play in that. Yeah, that it strikes me that this could easily be misunderstood as kind of back to that warning at the beginning of here's the technique, but what I'm hearing is like, okay, so read the word and do some magical thing with it and you get something out of it, but that's not what we're saying. It sounds like what you're saying is, and Dr. Kleinig, who I interviewed recently brought up a similar analogy of, and I think it's the same one actually, but it's crushing the herb to release its medicinal qualities. Like, yes. um, And I understand that's an ancient metaphor of this, but there's not there's not a technique in meditation. It's rather sitting long enough with the scripture or with the the words to let them have their full effect, to bring yes. myself to be present to them. And they mm-hmm. often say things at different times that I would not have noticed. But what unlocked that for me was you said sometimes it's that leads to repentance, right? So sometimes I go, oh, I recognize myself as bound to sin because of this. Sometimes that must lead to, I, in my own experience, it leads to a recognition of the wonders and beauty of God or, or something else. Yes. But it's whatever the text has for me. I just have to take the time. The word you used that Dr. Kleinig also used, pause. I actually have to take the time with the text to let it, let its aroma be smelled. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. and that, again, is something that can be difficult in life in the world, that is one of what I call the luxuries of monastic life. Because the truth is, in life, everything we truly desire requires that we put aside other Mm. things. Wow. Everything in life that we truly desire requires that we set aside things. I think that is deeply profound. And it really... Father Theodore, I've been thinking about this. It really puts a spin on the 
wicked evilness of the distraction that this world is presenting us so fast, so much. Mm-hmm. We are not the only ones to have noticed that our modern world is constantly assaulting us with distraction, with speed, with urgency, with need. and with noise. Yeah. And I just, I've been struck by, not to say too much about it, but struck by how satanic that is. Mm-hmm. If what you just said is true, and it is, right? I believe it, that everything that we desire in life requires us to give up something, to slow down, to take a pause. Well, then Satan would love nothing more for us to never do that. <laughs> it's, it is analogous to our, well, let's say our traditional understanding of Christian marriage. Marriage to another person requires that we set aside other persons. And if we don't, in most instances, marriage will not survive. Yeah, that is good. So are there, is there, is there a question I should be asking? I'm going to kind of skip to that. Is there something that I'm missing here that I, that I need to ask that my, the people are listening need to know? To be honest, offhand, I can't, think of anything. It's a lot. As I, as I said, this is a huge topic. And, and there's so much else behind some of what I've said that it's just too long to go into it. It, it, it touches very much on the, the Greek and very early Latin father's understanding of salvation itself, which is very different from what most people in the West are familiar with. But that becomes a very deep, detailed yeah. topic. I was just going to say, oh no, he, if you open that one, everybody now yeah, everybody's going to be, be mad done. at me for not digging into that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but we can't dig into that right now. Um, Father Theodore, thank you so much for this. This has been oh, yeah, a yeah. true delight. I have enjoyed this immensely. It's, it's, Um, it's been, it's been fun for me and it's an honor to be asked. Oh, good. Thank you. And listeners, Father Theodore is actually in my own office today. He's in town. I understand that Sebastian, the beloved monastery's dog is having his teeth cleaned this morning, correct? Yes. Yes. And that's an all day thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. So, well, may, can I ask you to pray for us as we end? Certainly. Thank you. God who has called us to know thee and to love thee. Strengthen our feeble efforts. Help us to set aside whatever in our lives is in the way of your grace and your love. Give us hearts open to you and through you to those around us. Make us ever ready to fulfill within ourselves what you have asked of us, in that we love you with everything we are and have, and love our neighbors as ourselves, as we know that you love us. And this we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Welcome. And listeners... May the grace of Christ go with you wherever the road takes you. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at signpostend.org. While you're there, sign up for our e-newsletter and we'll send you a free ebook. Also, a big thanks to all of our supporters. Signpost N is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry, and we exist only because of our generous donors who make everything we do possible. Please consider supporting us with your recurring donation. Visit signpostin.org slash donate.